Welcome to this week's episode of It Doesn't Look Good. As always, I'm your host, Tim. Today we get to hear from one of my best friends and the associate pastor at my church, Blake. He's going to share with us just how easy it is to start believing a false gospel when you experience something traumatic. He's also going to describe the journey that he took from that belief to understanding the true heart of God. So without further ado, here's the episode. I think the first time I felt truly hopeless, um, or in a moment where I felt this isn't going to get any better, I was probably 13 or 14. Um, So when I was 10, I started having these intense headaches, earaches, um, and doctors didn't know what was going on. My eye, my right eye would swell shut, um, and uh, it was just excruciating pain that was coming from my, behind my eyes and ears. And a CT revealed that um, basically where all my sinuses were supposed to be black um, because they were empty, mine were white, uh, and they didn't know, they actually thought they were polyps. And so, um, when I was, I can't remember how old I was, I was in, I was 10 or 11, I think it was in fifth grade and they scheduled a surgery to, uh, to remove these polyps and said, this is going to take a while because polyps are real mushy and we don't know what all we're going to be able to get into once we, you know, when we get in there. Well, it ended up coming out that, uh, they came out of the, the operating room at one point and told my mother, um, these aren't polyps, these are definitely tumors, but they're tumors unlike anything we've ever really seen. They're, they don't look like normal benign tumors, but they don't necessarily look like cancer. And so, um, and of course at 11, they weren't going to explain all this stuff to me. I learned this later on. But uh, basically, we went through a, a long spell, and I don't know how, how long it was. It was a long time where we didn't know exactly what this disease was. And it wasn't cancer, uh, and yet um, I believe that I believe the term was a histiocytosis, which was a doctor explained to me one time, and this, I'm not a medical expert by any sense, so um, we might fact check this later. But if you took 10 cells out of this particular tumor, nine were benign, but one was malignant. So it, w- it didn't spread like cancer did, but it, but it could be treated in a similar way that cancer was treated. And, um, and one of the things that it did is, is these tumors would grow back um, very aggressively. So they would cut out all these tumors in all of the parts of my sinus cavities from behind my eyes to right behind my nose. And uh, I still can't feel um, really from my, from my nose down to my jaw is still pretty numb from nerve damage that happened in those surgeries. But within weeks, they would grow back. Mm-hmm. And it started growing in my uh, eyes specifically, and they started, so they started getting very nervous that it was going to go into my brain, um, and it was going, they were going to have to, I was going to lose my eyes. Um, it could start endangering my life if it got into my brain. Um, and so they started getting real aggressive in how they were treating it, and they would go and, and they would cut out tumors that were growing by my eyes and um you know within a matter of two months those tumors were right back same size or bigger than they were before and how did this affect your day-to-day as far as like school and 
stuff that you had going extracurricular football, whatever it is. That, yeah. That you... So one of the main reasons they suggested that I try uh, low dose chemo, and um, because again the way that this these tumors acted, they thought and and I heard doctors call it shot in the dark stuff. So um, one of the things I didn't want to do is I didn't want to have a port put in because. Um, I was playing football and, and I didn't want to stop playing football. Uh, I would say the thing that it affected the most. For those that don't know, a port is a very invasive um, apparatus that yeah, is it's, in it's your chest. Basically like a permanent IV that yeah. lives in your chest. Uh, uh, I couldn't imagine that they're very comfortable. Caitlin had one uh, and she did not care for it. It wasn't fun. It goes it goes right underneath your clavicle, <clears throat> sits, sits right underneath your skin and I was worried that it was going to get irritated with shoulder pads specifically. Yeah. Um, so, any so there were those moments that I I, I had to decide kind of what is this going to look like. It, of course, my parents were the ones who who made the final decision. But also, I was more concerned about two things really. One, just my appearance, um, the amount of steroids and medicine that I was on, um, just. It really affected my emotions. It affected the way I looked. Uh, I, I joke and say I look like Quasimodo back then because my back was all hunched. I was really overweight, and my right eye had such a big tumor coming out of it that like it was partially closed, so it was very deformed looking. And uh, and so that affected me from a just a a day to day side. My friends were so supportive and really cool throughout that that season. Uh, but I, there was this other side of it that was highly spiritual that um, I kept praying over and over and over and over for God to take it away. Um, that the doctors couldn't do anything. It didn't seem like it. And every time they did, it was always very painful what they decided to do. It was either yeah. surgery or or chemo or something and I couldn't imagine that now for myself personally just because of remembering back to every time a doctor walked into a room when Caitlin was sick like I still have PTSD uh, yeah probably not now but there were times when she was still going through treatment and they would come in and I just and my spirit would sink and so all of that to say that I couldn't imagine being your age when you went through this, you know, preteen teenager and having that doctor come in the room and just knowing that whatever they're going to say, it was going to be good. not going to be no, good. Yeah. No, it never was. And so, and I, I have the same thing even now with, uh, wellness checkups and, uh, any sort of imaging. Um, so my wife got an, yeah. a mammogram, uh, sure. a week ago, no reason for me to be concerned about it. Just routine. Just, my kids tomorrow yeah. have a, have a wellness checkup, their one year wellness checkup. Um, but there was no such thing. Annual. Annual. They're well, not one years old. They're just. They're just, annual they're, checkup. Sorry. Yes. My <laughs> kids are 10 annual. and seven. Yeah. <laughs> they're one year checkup, yearly checkup. So there's all in my mind, you kind of talked about, you know, almost having post-traumatic stress after that um in my mind they can only tell me bad news because that's what happened sure. so my hopelessness was felt the most when i was inside of an mri um we had it would take probably an hour and 20 minutes hour and a half to do my imaging because um, they had to do the first one of my sinuses and then they had to do a dye 
um, to do my eyes and to get M uh, MRI of your eyes is really hard to do because you can't move your eyes around or you couldn't back then. I'm sure the technology has gotten better now. Yeah. But um, so I would be in there for a really long time. And the most of the time I just was afraid of what those images were going to reveal, mostly because I was afraid of what the pain on the other side of it was going to cause. So there was just this constant feeling of drowning. Um, and at the same time, praying that the Lord would take all of this away and yeah. him not taking this away. And so suddenly I found myself at 14 in Children's Hospital every Wednesday uh, taking low-dose chemo. Um, it would still make me sick but it would not make me sick like it was the people, the children that I was, I was in clinic with. So sure. we would have in clinic, inpatient, I would go into those rooms with them and have conversations with them. We would wait on our blood work to come back together. You know, we would play, I remember playing Donkey Kong. There was a big Donkey Kong thing in the, in the waiting room. So we would have these conversations because you're there all morning together, you know, getting treatment. And me feeling hopeless as in the sense of going, this is always going to be in my life. There's never going to be another point where sickness is not going to be a part of my life. And, and at 14, like you think of the average length of someone's lifespan, you know, 80 years, and you're all of a sudden having to deal with this for now, what could be, like you said, the rest of your life. Right. And just the length of that and the agony and the misery. I heard you say earlier that, you know, you were talking about spiritually um, and praying for God to take it away. What did that do as far as like, you know, you said he didn't take it away. And now you're dealing with this for what could be the rest of your lengthy life. Or maybe not, you know, because you didn't know if it was. If yeah, I would say at the time, terminal. at the time we the, it, it's it's not it wasn't terminal, uh, and they never told us it was terminal. They they but they treated it so aggressively because they were constant. There were there were two things that were at work. One, it was in a really dangerous place in my body for it to be. Sure. Um, and then two, they did not know very much about this disease at the time at all. They had right. never seen it in somebody's sinuses, at least in my region. The, the only time it really ever pops up is in your lymph nodes, particularly in your neck. Um, and so um, mine were in my sinuses, and they had never treated anything quite like that. Uh, and so they were kind of, um, they were scrambling as well. So there was just a whole lot of question marks as to what is this disease and what's it doing. But the other side of it was, I was every week with these children who were battling terminal illnesses. I remember waiting uh, in the operating, in, this, in surgery operating room, which was my, my, that was where the biggest terror I ever had would, would come, was always in the, in waiting for surgery to start. And um, it got backed up, and I was with a kid, and we were playing Nintendo, because that's just, I don't know, Children's Hospital yeah, has had a lot you of do. Nintendos. <laughs> so we're playing Super Nintendo, and we're talking. And he's at, and he was uh, maybe a year or two younger than me. He's probably 10 or 11. And we were just talking about how scared we were and how much this is awful and all this stuff. And, you know, he said, I'm having a bone marrow transplant, because he's, he, had, he had bone marrow cancer. And I remember my mom her reaction when I told her that was just like, oh my, oh my word, like I can't imagine. And what was weird as, as a 12 year old, 
I didn't see myself any different than that child in the waiting room uh, because in my head, I was just as likely to either die or experience the same amount of pain. Yeah. I, 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 I certainly didn't see it as a parent. You know? Right. Looking back, yes, I mean, that, that, that was a heartbreaking moment. But for sure. me, me and him were on the same playing field right. as far as what we were scared of. You don't separate that as a kid. No, like, no. It's just... No, and so the, I think the thing that that we, that I, I and, and I would ask the Lord to heal these children too um, that were battling cancers, and none of us, one of the things we, I remember, you know, talking to a lot of people about was these these well-meaning coaches or teachers or people who would say things like, I know you guys think you're going to live forever to, to, you know, a bunch of junior high, high school kids who probably do think that. And me going, I know I don't. Like, if anything, I'm afraid I'm going to die before I get out of high school. Like, yeah. I think I'm going to die young. I couldn't imagine. Yeah, and so uh, my theory from there went from, well, God must like it when people suffer. And that was yeah. that because if he if he did love me, he would take this away from me. Right. And that was a theology that was that was very misguided. Um, yeah. That it wasn't that God uses all things, even bad things, for good. It was uh, God is happy that you're unhappy, and because it should make God happy to hear. And this is when you're 14, 14, 15 years old. Yeah. Man. Yeah. So I have I had so the hopelessness there came from doctors can't fix this and God won't fix this. Right. So what do I do? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And, uh, and it, and it took probably 10 years later for me to realize, um, I had built my theology around a God who didn't really exist, which was this, this mean, angry, I'm out to get you God, right. and not a God who loves me, who's for me and who has purposes even in pain that I don't fully understand even now, but for, yeah. but understand a lot better than I did when I was younger. Yeah, I think that that's something that I, I feel like, you know, obviously to different degrees, people struggle with that. I'm struggling through a similar kind of false theology right now on myself just because it has, I mean, it's, we're not even two years out yet mm. since Caitlin's death. So, you know, there's still things that I'm working through, but to be a 14 year old kid and having that sort of deep theology, be it, you know, because it's false, I mean, it is something that I could not even fathom having to work through at that age. Yeah, it was, um, it was a lot. And honestly, I couldn't articulate it the way I can now. Um, back then, I, I didn't. Right, um, back then, it's just God doesn't care if yeah, you suffer. Yeah, and I, and I wouldn't have ever said that outright. Uh, it certainly was something that I believed, though. And I I think the one thing that, I, I, that was true in those moments, though, because I, I truly believe I was, a, I was a follower of Christ when I was that age, um, I do remember the nearness of God, though, in those moments. Um, I remember feeling the nearness of God, um, even in in painful moments. Um, I just remember, I remember feeling the. Sure. Presence do you of God. have a specific moment that you can recall and go, "This is a moment when I felt hopeless or whatever," but I know that God was present. Yeah, I think the moment that comes to my mind directly. Is was it was actually the death of my stepfather, which happened when I was eighteen. Um, in and 
basically what ha- the reason that that sticks out to me the most uh it was a very unexpected death um when i was right before i graduated high school but i had kind of built this theology when i was younger that god will only use storms in your life to grow you like he only he is only happy when there are storms going on in your life now does he only use that no does he use it primarily uh, yes i mean one of the primary ways god grows us as followers of Jesus is to allow us to go through trials like that is 100% biblical but the problem was I was I didn't trust God and so I was afraid of the storms and I wasn't I wasn't trusting that God was good and and loving in the middle of the storms and so I built my entire life around trying to avoid the storms which to me was um, more pain medically and the death of my loved ones well, I can't control either one of those things. Right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. so, but, but I say all that to say, when we found out that Dale died, um, when it was just a normal Wednesday afternoon for us, there were some things in me that were, that were already in place, such as never take for granted the people in your life because because you never know what's going on. Right, like you're just. I've always until recently I basically just had this um I just believed everybody has cancer it's just a matter of time before they figure out where it is and how bad it is and so uh, and that was because of just my experiences when I was a kid it's so hard to get away from those like in I feel like they're just ingrained those thoughts sometimes whenever we struggle through a difficult moment like for you it was sickness for me it was sickness of my wife and now it's just like you hear every other day that someone is diagnosed with something and you're like, well, of course, you know what I'm right, saying? Like, right, right. I, I just, it's a matter of time. Yeah, I get what you're saying for sure. So I think the, the, the way I felt the Lord so near in those moments was I felt um, just physical pain because of the amount of emotion, emotional pain that we felt when we lost Dale. Dale was was very much a father figure to me, raised me from the time I was probably eight, nine years old. Um, And I have a close relationship with my father, but I lived with Dale um, the majority of my childhood. And um, and So he was there primarily when you were going through all of the sickness. Yes, absolutely. Him and my dad and my mom and my stepmom, they were all there. Uh, in Big fact, family. Yeah, I call it a, a more of a family forest uh, <laughs> than a tree. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, and so he, he I, you know, I say stepdad, and some people might have uh, different stereotypes in their head. He was just a very loving man who cared for us deeply. We thought the world of. So when he died, um, there was this other this thing of like, okay, well, my greatest nightmares as an eighteen-year-old. You know, I hadn't, I hadn't had a wife and kids yet. Uh, had happened, which is I lost a parent and um, suddenly out of nowhere and, you know, and then I'd had to deal with a bunch of medical realities too. And there were just these moments I remember with uh, me and a guitar in my room when I was 18 years old um, singing worship songs and just knowing that God was near um, Mm -hmm. and going, even though this is horrible and my life is turned upside down I'm still choosing to trust you Um, I'm still choosing to put my hope in you and even realizing that some of that hope um, 
I was put, I was, I was, in some ways I was blindly hoping in that because there were some things I was even afraid of God that ended up getting corrected later of sure. me going, well, God's, God might be mad at me and that's the reason this is going to happen or, you know, and those weren't true. Right. It was just, I was living in a fallen and broken world. Uh, but I also was following a God who is in control and uses all things to, for, for my good. And so those were, whenever I experienced that, I, then I was able to go back and go, okay, no, there was, there was a moment when I was 15 and my face was in the carpet and I was praying that God would take this away. And I just had a peace one way or the other that this was going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I would go into um, surgeries, I remember um, there, were, there were some things that would happen afterwards and I won't get into because it's pretty graphic but there was just some really painful physically painful things that would happen to me after uh, surgery and after the first one and I remember asking the Lord would you just spare me from this this part like would you please keep me from having to experience this section of recovery again and he did um in in the surgery was no different but i didn't and there were these moments i just felt affirmed by the lord like he's here he's gonna help me so there were moments for sure but the danger of it was my theology got uh, a little warped in that Mm -hmm. season uh, because of some things that i thought about god that just weren't true so um and we can answer this now or you can take some time later if you want to continue on your story but uh just i feel like it's important to ask because you said that your theology was warped by it um what is it that you did or how did you discover that your theology was warped maybe for people out there who are kind of going through the same thing of oh god doesn't care that i'm suffering he's not answering my prayer i don't feel like he's near yeah he's distant how did you learn otherwise yeah so um so what happened is when i was about 16 or 17 um, i got on a particular drug um, that did clear up my my tumors Um, now whether it was that or was the fact i was going through puberty could have also played into it because uh, they had seen any children that had this in their lymph nodes by the time they hit puberty it kind of burned itself out and I don't know I don't know why um, that was the case but they wondered if that was part of it um, and so my disease really kind of went dormant when I was 16 or 17 uh, and so I say that just so people would know I'm, I'm not currently dealing with that medical reality I'm dealing with some of the repercussions of that but not the tumors directly uh, and they've considered they've they've stayed in remission and away and um, haven't given me any issues since I was about 16 or 17 but all of that fear was still there then eight, 18 happened and I lost Dale and that just continued to uh, make this uh, this theology of uh, of fear and when I say fear I mean not the Proverbs 1 fear it was this I don't want to make God angry because he'll hurt me. Uh, not, I don't want to make, uh, I don't want to sin because it hurts my relationship with Christ and it, and, it, and it steals joy from me and it's outside of the way that God has for me to live. It was, if I do, if I don't, if I sin, God's going to mess up my world and I don't want him to do that. And so that translated into when I got married, I was afraid God was going to give Danielle cancer or that she was going to die in a car wreck or any, any number of those things, any sort of tragedy or sickness. 
Um, and then when my daughter was born, it's the same thing. When my son was born, same thing. Until I was about 26, 27, and we had planning a church in Conway, Arkansas. And uh, all of the circumstances of stress of finishing seminary, planning a church, um, dealing with fears on a daily basis of um, sickness and doctors and um, and tragedy, all kind of came to this head of uh, I was on uh, I was with one of my best friends Kyle and I was we were driving down the road and I just looked at him and said if something doesn't change I'm not gonna make it like I'm not gonna make it in life I'm not gonna thrive I'm not I'm going to just spiral. And through a series of moments that the, I believe the Lord just divinely set up uh, to meet with a pastor, a pastor at a different church who looked at me and said, Blake, I think you have an identity problem. And I had just graduated, or about, no, I think I had just graduated from Southern Seminary. I had this really great Bible degree from a world-class seminary. And I was like, I know the gospel. I know who Christ is. Like, I'm, I know who I am. And he said, no, I really think you have a an identity problem of who who Jesus sees you as and who, how you see God, and so I went through um, I went through a study called the Search for Significance by Robert McGee, and um, and through that study and time with him, uh, and honestly just surrendering to the Lord of saying, would you just show me some things in my heart that that need to that need to get out? Um, I started realizing that I believed that God was sovereign, but He wasn't good. Uh, I believed he he loved me only as much as I would do for him. So the moment I got out of line, he would just squash me. Um, that he liked it, like not not that he used suffering for my good. He enjoyed me suffering um, and was not okay with me being happy. And I would never have voiced those because those were things that I knew better. Like I was a pastor, I had the degree. I knew how to preach. Right, you're not supposed to think those I'm things. I'm not supposed to think those things, but I was in denial that I was actually believing those things. And those that was where all of my faith crises would happen was I was just living in denial, and so I would just push it off on, well, it's the circumstances. Sure. It, it, was, it was the chemo, or it was the death of uh, Dale, or it was the miscarriage, or the season of crazy busyness of planning a church, or whatever. It was always something that was causing this and not something that was going on in my own heart. And when I got to a point in my life where I said, I've got to get gut-level honest with the Lord and tell Him these things and just confess these things to Him, uh, that's what I did. And I put on this, put it all on a piece of paper, and I looked at it, and I was like, this looks more like a really angry football coach who only cares about winning and not the God of the Bible. Yeah. And so that's when I, and that's why I said earlier, I was really more of afraid of a phantom God uh, than the true, the God of the Bible. And so I said, well, I can either continue to be afraid of this God, or I can choose to love and serve the God of Scripture, because that's not the God of Scripture. And fortunately, all of that Bible knowledge that I did have I was able to then turn the page physically and, you know, hypothetically too, um, or metaphorically, and write down all of the things in Scripture that I knew to be true about who God was, that He was for me before I was for Him, that He loved me before I loved Him, that He right. He destined me for righteousness and not for wrath, and all these different things. And I said, okay, well, this is the God I serve and not 
not this God who is sadistic and aloof and apathetic to suffering. And that's where it changed. But it took 10 years before yeah. before I got to that place where I was ready to actually make that turn. So knowing that it took 10 years, what what could you say to somebody who might be kind of in that same place right now just to give them hope for moving forward and getting to a place to where they're not afraid of, of the God that you were afraid of and instead serving the true God. Yeah. I think, um, the thing, it does not have to take 10 years. Uh, I think everyone has their journey though. And it just, in the providence of God, mine took that long to, at least for me to awaken what was going on. If people are feeling hopeless right now, some things I would, some things I would ask them are what, what is it that you're actually putting your hope in right now? Um, because if it's circumstantial, so for me it was what those test results are going to tell me, um, what that doctor is going to tell me about my children tomorrow, what that mammogram is going to reveal. If my hope is, is built on that, then I'm building my life on shaky ground. And, um, and it's not wrong to hope that my doctor tells me your children are perfectly healthy tomorrow. I think that's a good thing to hope for. But if my hope is built, my contentment is built on that, then um, then I'm on shaky ground. And the problem was I would I used to say, well, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, because that's what you're supposed to say. The problem was as my, a pastor. As a pastor, especially. I was I was a pastor. I I knew I am a pastor still. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, I knew I knew that that's what I was supposed to. That was that was the that was what was going to get me an A on that test. The problem was really what I believed was my hope and my happiness and my contentment in life is built on physical health and uh, and keeping the people I love in my life in my life as long as I possibly can. And not that there's anything wrong with either one of those two things, but when my hope is built on those two things, on physical health and keeping those people in my life as long as I can, then that's out of my control. And that's, I'm suddenly trying to put myself in the place of God. And so what I would say to you is first is be very, very gut level honest with yourself about where, where you're placing your hope. Uh, because where you're placing your hope is what you're putting your trust in. And for me, uh, it always ended up going back to a place of, of, of trusting who God is. And I just didn't trust him. So I wasn't going to surrender to the plan of a God I didn't trust. And so what I would challenge you to do is, is to ask the question after you, after you have that gut level honest moment that the Lord already knows is in your heart. He, you're not going to say anything to him that he doesn't already know about you. But when you say that of going, well, this is what I'm afraid of, or this is what I don't want to happen, or this, this is why I don't, um, this is where my hope is, is if it's not Christ, then I would ask the question, what is it about God that you don't trust? I think that's been the most helpful question uh, in my entire life was the question, what is it about God that I don't trust uh, when it comes to the life and welfare of my kids, uh, my own health, my own hopes and dreams of things that I want to do, um, all these things. If anything ever hinders that in my mind, um, the first question I have to ask is, is there something about God here that you're not willing to trust, even though your story is not going the way you would want to write it? 
And every time I feel like the Lord meets me in a new way and shows me like, no, there's, there is a part of this that you don't really believe in the resurrection of the dead. Like you don't really believe uh, in this part that where it says that Jesus Christ rose from the dead and he gives life to your mortal bodies. And so I would repent and go, that's right. I think right now in this moment, I'm believing that this life is all that there is. And what I can see and feel right in front of me is all that there is. And when we die, this is it. Like, that's all we got. And if that that life isn't going the way I want it to go, my life is going to spiral out of control. So I stop and go, no, I don't believe that, though. I believe in who Jesus is, what he did. Uh, that his resurrection promises my resurrection and the ones that the, the ones that I love. And I'm going to follow him. I'm going to trust him and I'm going to surrender to him because, uh, because he's good. And once I got to that place, I was able to always take my fear to the Lord. So it wasn't like this one time when I was 27 and now I never deal with anxiety again. It's now that I, now I know where, what to do with that anxiety whenever it comes. And that's go directly to the Lord. Yes, that is to go directly to the Lord. And if I can't, if I'm struggling, and if I feel like he's far off, um, I always ask myself the question, what is it about God you don't trust right now? Because I promise you there's something there, that that there's something there that we're not trusting. Yeah, so you would say then to someone who is struggling through that, that that's where they need to start, is to ask themselves, what are you not trusting? What are you not believing what is it about your theology that's flawed or maybe they don't have theology at all and then the the of course the best place to start is to go who is this jesus dude and what did he do so man that was good and i think really i think one stuff. of the things i i, I want to add to that too is knowing knowing the answers to those questions if you get to a place where you're going no, i do trust god um in this area, that doesn't mean that there's not going to be tears and there's not going to, that doesn't mean that there's not going to be moments that you cry. Why? Um, that's, that is, that is completely appropriate. What it means is that you don't spiral into a place of despair. Um, you know, that, that, um, one of the things that I think the Lord, um, showed me in when Caitlin was, kind of on her last leg it was before hospice but it wasn't it wasn't too long before hospice um was the passage i believe it's in philippians is we're persecuted not abandoned struck down but not destroyed uh but there's this part that goes we're perplexed but not driven to despair and i felt like there was this moment where i was feeling shame for going why is this happening to her like why why isn't either why is she suffering so much and and the Lord showing in Scripture through the Apostle Paul, it's okay to scratch your head and be perplexed about that. Uh, you can be perplexed and not driven to despair, though. And yeah. so, um, but do I trust, even though I don't have the answer, do I trust the God who has the answers? And that was that's what makes it to the place where we aren't driven to despair, is we trust the God that has the answers when we're very perplexed. 
Yeah, I think it's great that you're a pastor. I think that a lot of times people look at pastors and go, they don't struggle with anything. They don't struggle with, obviously we all struggle with sin, but I feel like a, a lot of times people look at pastors and think yeah, they, they don't never, struggle they never through doubt their faith doubt or anything or like anything that. Yeah, like for that. sure. So I think it's really important that we see otherwise. And I, I just want to say thank you for being, being vulnerable and walking through that stuff on here. So well, thanks, thanks for thanks for, for having everybody. me. All right. Nice. We'll see you guys next week. Well, I hope that was as helpful for you as it was for me. Sometimes it's so easy to fall into believing a false gospel. Maybe there's something about God that you don't trust right now. If so, it's time to identify what that is and turn it over to Christ. If you need help doing that, or if there's any other way that we can pray for you, you could submit your prayer request on hopeagainsthope.com. Just click the Request Prayer tab. Thanks again to Blake for being on the show. Thanks to you for listening, and we'll see you again next week. Just in case you weren't aware, It Doesn't Look Good is sponsored entirely by Hope Against Hope. If you haven't taken the time to check out our website yet, you can do that at hopeagainsthope.com. And please consider making a tax-deductible donation while you're there. Every dollar donated goes directly to people that have life-threatening illnesses and to make sure we can continue to provide that much-needed financial relief. Thanks.